Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. From KQED. Hey everyone, a note just before we get started here. This episode contains descriptions of police violence. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. When I was reporting on police killings in Vallejo, one of the things that I walked away with was just how rare it was to see Vallejo police held accountable for killing someone. Until now. Vallejo Police Chief Shawnee Williams has served a notice of intent to fire Officer Jarrett Ton who shot and killed 22-year-old Sean Monterosa in June of last year. This is a really big step for the city in terms of being able to point to something to show, you know, civilians who have been criticizing the police department and the accountability process that, look, we're firing, moving to fire this officer who, you know, was involved in this very high-profile controversial shooting. Today, how and why Vallejo police decided to fire Jared Ton. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. Why did Vallejo police decide to fire Officer Jarrett Ton over the killing of Sean Monterosa. I just want to point out first that so far what's happened is that the chief has said he's going to move to fire Ton, but Ton still has access to a lengthy appeals process, and the chief could also, you know, decide to downgrade that discipline, you know, if evidence comes to light that is mitigating. Suki Lewis is a criminal justice reporter for KQED and host of On Our Watch, a podcast about the secret world of police discipline. So I just want to say the move so far has been to terminate him, but that hasn't gone all the way through the process yet. But why he decided to make this move to fire him is that the chief found that Tan violated the department's policies around deadly use of force, de-escalation, as well as body cam policies the night that he shot and killed Sean Monterosa. 
And the heart of it was that the chief and the independent investigation found that Ton didn't have enough evidence that Monterosa was an imminent threat. And they found that he just acted too hastily and that he didn't have enough reasons to make the move to use deadly force. This notice of intent to fire Jarrett Ton was the result of what's known as an internal affairs investigation. Can you remind us actually what that is and why it's significant? So the internal affairs investigations are how departments um, kind of go through an investigation of themselves in order to provide accountability. And um, it allows them to kind of gather evidence that they can use to fire an officer or discipline an officer to find out if they did something wrong. And in this case, because, you know, this shooting was really controversial, it, you know, was criticized early on by, you know, people in the city of Vallejo. There's a lot of attention on Vallejo about other, you know, shootings that have happened there. The chief decided to outsource the internal investigation to this outside law firm to do an independent investigation and come in so it wouldn't be like Jarrett Ton's buddy doing the investigation. It would be this outside law firm questioning officers about their actions that night and then issuing a report. They don't have the ability to impose discipline. So they basically say, this is what we think happened. This is, you know, what the allegations that we would sustain, which is like a guilty finding relative to these officers. They submit that that to the chief. And then he's the one who kind of goes through the report and is like, yeah, I agree with this or no, I don't agree with this. And in this case, the chief actually did agree and As you just mentioned, after an internal affairs investigation is done, the findings are released, and including most notably interviews with the officer who shot Sean Monterosa, Jarrett Tan. I want to ask you, what was so interesting to you about this new kind of trove of documents and interviews? Because this case is kind of of so much importance locally, and it's also being investigated by the state attorney general, and there have been a lot of questions about, you know, why Ton took this very kind of aggressive stance. It just raised a lot of questions kind of right off the bat. But we had, you know, very little insight into why those actions were taken. And so getting to hear from the officers themselves about, you know, how the chain of events that led up to taking this action happened. And then also the chain of events right afterwards, which were caught on body camera and were also very disturbing. So we're actually hearing Ton's account of that night, basically. Yeah. Second is 0933 hours. If those present in the room can state their names, please. So let's dig into what's in some of these tapes. Jarrett Ton is being interviewed by investigators about the night that he killed Sean Monterosa. And I should say his name is redacted, but we do know that it's him because he was the shooter. Um, what does Ton say about what was going on in Vallejo that night from his perspective? I was told earlier in the day that I was on standby, both in my capacity as a and also as a SWAT team member, um, that I might be called in to uh, assist with any uh, additional criminal looting that was happening, similar to the night before, um, around 
So if I can transport the audience, you know, back in time to June 2020, and there were all these protests that were happening, you know, protesting the police killing of George Floyd. There was a lot of anti-police sentiment, a lot of emotion and um, a lot of, you know, raw anger um, on, on both sides, I'd say. The police felt under attack, and you can really hear that in the tapes, that they were fearful of, you know, people showing up and trying to do something to their department. The situations were becoming increasingly violent across the country. There had been numerous attacks against law enforcement. I was aware that over the weekend, um, I believe Thursday or Friday, a federal security officer was killed in what appeared to be a fairly well-coordinated um, drive-by ambush-style attack with a high-powered rifle. There had been a lot of kind of action in Vallejo in the in the previous evenings that wasn't necessarily protest action, but there were kind of these burglaries happening, you know, crimes happening that police felt really stretched thin and like they were having to respond in a million directions at once. And so you can see this kind of atmosphere of like heightened pressure on the situation and this feeling that there is this kind of negative animosity towards police and that they might kind of have to be in a position to defend themselves. Tonight, every call you're responding to, pursuit, foot chase, uh, guy with a gun, like tonight was in, like crazy, you know? And so these aren't people um, that you can let your guard around if you want to survive, if you want to live. The officers and Anton talked about kind of the chatter that they had been hearing about you know, who was coming and what they were going to do. And he talks about kind of this fear that Antifa was going to kind of come in an organized way and and try to cause some harm, you know, in the city or to the department. One of the groups that specifically came up was Antifa members um, in the Bay Area. And there had also been some uh, online social media chatter about specifically those people and Antifa actually coming into Vallejo. Why does it matter that Ton believed that it was Antifa, that, that he might encounter Antifa on the scene? Like, why is that significant? To me, it is significant because it kind of goes to the psychology of what was happening then and this, and this feeling of like us versus them and that there's this organized group that is, you know, specifically trying to target police for violence. From hearing these interviews, what it sounds like was a very kind of fearful, amped up, uh, mindset that the officers were entering into this with rather than the kind of considered tactical command and control that might have been more effective. So then Jarrett Ton is dispatched to this Walgreens in Vallejo responding to a call of a, of a potential burglary. How do Ton and the other officers with him prepare for that? So this is another really interesting point just in how these chain of events that led to to the fatal incident played out. And it was this captain with um, the Vallejo Police Department who saw something going on at the Walgreens and called it in over the radio. Ton and the two officers that were with him in the truck heard the call on the radio. And it just so happened that we were driving um, westbound on Redwood near North Camino Alto, and so they go over there and they see the captain sitting in his vehicle and they pull up alongside him and 
make a plan. But it was literally, I mean, they describe it in their interviews as being, you know, maybe 15 seconds. Like it's just an exchange of words. And he quickly comes up with a plan and he says, he goes, I'll go this way, pointing to the north entrance, which is uh, on the north side of the pharmacy off of um, Broadway. And he goes, you guys take that side, pointing to the um, south entrance that's off of Redwood. And we'll block them in. So they don't make a plan of what to do if they have guns. They don't make a plan of what to do once they get these guys or stop them from getting away. So they rush into this situation with really not a clear idea, once again, of what their actions should be. And with this really heightened sense of like urgency. And I think, you know, they're already amped up and it's it's just that next that next layer. So we start moving in and second, half a sec, two seconds before coming into contact where we were going to jump out and hold them at gunpoint, um, gets on the radio and says they're armed. As they're pulling in, another call comes over the radio in which the captain says they're armed, possibly armed. And again, he doesn't say there's this one guy who has a gun. He kind of uses this very vague terminology that is, 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 would be difficult as a police officer to then create an appropriate tactical response to, right? But it puts this idea, you know, in, in Ton's mind, according to Ton, that they're going to see somebody with a gun. What did you, when he said they're armed, what did, what did you take that to mean? Yeah, I took that to mean that they had firearms. That is kind of his excuse or his explanation for why when he sees Monterosa, who's running to get in this car, and then the car pulls away and he drops to his knee, and he sees something kind of poking out of his waistband or out of his pocket, and he thinks that Monterosa is turning to shoot him with a gun. And he says it's because he had gotten this call. And when he turned and, and went, took that crouch position and then reached in and I saw what I, well, at the time I thought was a, the handle of a gun. I'm like, shoot out. And it, he's, that's it. He's going to start shooting at us so everyone else can get away. What do we know about what actually happened next that led to the moment where Jarrett Ton actually shoots and kills Sean Monterosta based, based on the facts that we know? Well, there are a number of things that that Tan chose to do that, you know, both the chief and the OIR report found problematic. For one thing, you know, I talked about that call saying they're armed, possibly armed. He says to interviewers that he was told that Sean Monterosa was armed, which is is just not accurate. Then as they're pulling in, if you do believe someone is armed, they have these de-escalation policies, which basically say, like, hang back, like, don't immediately, you know, rush to engage because that's going to put your life at threat and also put you in a position where you might have to use de- deadly force. So they don't take any de-escalation measures. They don't hang back. Instead, they move forward closer to the person that they suspect has a gun. And as the truck is still rolling Jarrett Ton is in the back seat with his service rifle, and yet he decides to fire his rifle at Sean Monterosa through the windshield, and he keeps firing. 
And so he fires five shots through the windshield without a great ability to even tell if he, he could hit, you know, somebody else or another police officer. He didn't say anything. He didn't say, gun, 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 or I'm going to fire, or like any, any kind of alert to his fellow colleagues that he was going to use his rifle. And he actually ends up hitting Sean Monterosa in the back of the head, which they point out again in the report indicates that he was not a threat. He was turning away and that this deadly force, you know, was, was really not necessary or reasonable. So we've been talking about these internal affairs interviews with Jarrett Tan that really reveal what was kind of going on in his mind in the moments leading up to the shooting. Did investigators buy Jarrett Tan's story? They didn't seem to buy his explanations for things, specifically with regards to a number of statements that he made right after the shooting. He jumps out of the truck after firing at Monterosa. And he immediately, as soon as the audio from the body camera comes on, he says, what did he point at us? What did he point at us? I don't know, man. Hey, he pointed a gun at us. Don't move. Do not move. Do not move. And he kind of had this explanation to investigators in which he said, I was just trying to get validation for my impression that he had a gun. And they were kind of like, mm, seems like you weren't really sure he had a gun. I, I said something to him like, you know, did you see the gun? Or he pointed the gun. I'm trying to convey to him that, you know, hey, he had a gun. Um, but I'm just locked in on him. And then, uh, then everything completely felt slow after that, like, like weirdly slow. I felt like we stood there for like a minute trying to figure out what to do. Um, and then we made a tactical plan to, to go up and, and detain him. I was looking around for the gun, and then I saw um, you know, that he had a hammer or something sticking out of his um, front sweater pocket. Suki, I feel like we are so used to seeing an officer kill someone and saying, I feared for my life, and then kind of seeing them kind of walk away without consequences. And Jeraton did tell investigators that he feared for his life in this case. Um, but why wasn't that explanation enough this time? I would imagine a number of factors come into it. But reading the report, it was really interesting to me how they looked at the totality of circumstances. So often this analysis used to be very very finite to the moment when deadly force was used. Did they have fear for their life in that moment? And just recently, a law went into effect in California in 2020 that kind of expanded that analysis that said you also can take into account the actions leading up to that moment. And so that's where these things like not having a plan, um, not communicating with fellow officers, not being sure of the deadly force kind of come into play. That these actions, because they're unreasonable and they build upon each other, kind of lead to this moment where Tan decides to use deadly force and which they found, you know, that to be not reasonable.
I know Sean Montrose's family, particularly his sisters Michelle and Ashley, have been very vocal about calling specifically for Jaraton to be fired, arrested, and charged. How are they feeling right now about this news, about Ton being served with this notice of intent to um, be fired? It's kind of kind of that first big ask of theirs. The investigation was conducted and we're grateful for the OIR group for getting it right. So Michelle Monterosa talked to KQED and, you know, said that she was really grateful that the investigative, you know, report came to this conclusion, you know, what she called, I think, the right conclusion. You know, a lot of the times we hear of cases being justified, justified. But this is something we and everything in the report, everything that was said, me and my sister, our family have been advocating for yesterday marked 18 months. So, you know, we're just happy that to know that this part of the investigation is done. But now we're awaiting um, for criminal charges to be presented. She also said how difficult and devastating it is emotionally to kind of go through each of these steps and to have to relive this this very, very difficult and painful moment. It was painful. You know, I we went my stomachs were in knots. Um, I went through the same pain and trauma. Um that we lived through on the night of June 2nd. Um, Unfortunately, you know, that feeling would never go away, but um, there was a sense of a little, not relief, but a little bit of, at least I can take a deep breath of, you know, it's been, like I said, 18 months of us just fighting and and everything that was reported in the report we've been saying, we felt a little bit relieved to see that that the, the report was in our favor. And of course, they're they're not they're not done. Um, there's still a couple more steps ahead for for the Monterosa family. This was just the internal investigation. Um, but what other investigations are there against Jarrett Tan? So the attorney general, you know, Rob Bonta's office is also doing an investigation of this shooting. And it'll be really interesting to see, you know, what decision in terms of criminal charges his office makes if he finds that there's enough evidence to charge Jarrett Tan with a crime. And I would also expect the attorney general's office to also take this longer view of what were the actions that were taken leading up to that moment in terms of trying to determine, you know, whether this use of force was reasonable or whether it was necessary. So I think it will really be interesting to see how that analysis is done from the criminal side and and if there are charges brought against Tan. Um, I, I mean, as you know, Suki, we've we've covered Vallejo on this on this show quite a bit, um, and accountability is is pretty rare out there and. I know a lot of a lot of people in Vallejo have really been watching this case specifically and I'm I'm curious like how big of a win you think this this really is for people in Vallejo who've been demanding police accountability there for for years. This is a really big step for the city in terms of being able to point to something to show, you know, civilians who have been criticizing the police department and the accountability process that, look, you know, we have we had this independent investigation. We're following the recommendations of it and we're firing, moving to fire this officer who, you know, was involved in this very high profile controversial shooting. 
On the other hand, it's really just a small step. And, and is it only happening because there is such scrutiny on the department for this case? And, you know, is it really evidence of a shift in the in the culture and the mindset? Or is it, you know, basically just kind of wallpaper to try to pretend that, that these kinds of reforms are happening? Because those independent investigators found that it was not just Jarrett Tan who broke policy that night. They found that the other officers broke the department's policies around de-escalation, body camera policies. And thus far, the city has, has told me, you know, they can't comment on an ongoing case, but they said they have not disciplined any of the other officers um, in connection with this. Now, one of the reasons for that may be that a number of those um, involved officers who were there that night have moved on. The guy who kind of made the, the plan, if you will, that captain I was talking about, he retired. The guy who was driving the truck has left and is now working for the Napa Sheriff's Office. There is one other officer, Detective Wesley Pittman, who appears to be still working for the Vallejo Police Department and, you know, potentially could be disciplined, but thus far is not being disciplined. Suki, there's a lot more to watch on this case. Um, Thank you so much for helping us break this down. Really appreciate it. Sure thing. It's a pleasure to be on your show. The Vallejo Police Officers Association, the union that represents Vallejo Police, pushed back strongly against the findings of the Internal Affairs investigation, calling it politically motivated and saying it came to the wrong conclusion. The union says it will continue to support Tan and any other officers facing discipline in connection with the killing of Sean Monterosa. Also, Suki reached out to Jarrett Tan and his lawyers and did not hear back. Thanks to Suki Lewis, criminal justice reporter for KQED and the host of On Our Watch. Thanks also to Tara Seiler, who conducted the interview you heard with Michelle Monterosa. This episode of The Bay was produced by Alan Montecilio, who cut this episode, me, who added the tape, and by Carlos Cabrera Lomeli, who scored it. And I also want to take this time to shout out Carlos for helping us make this show these past two weeks. The Bay is made at your local public media station, KQED, in San Francisco. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Talk to you next time. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more 
all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.